managing the risk and how do you do that without having a lot of experience. I think it's what you said. I mean, it's, it's a lot of working on the foundation and building blocks and paying your dues. Hey folks, can you believe it's our hundredth episode? It's amazing. I've only been at this a couple of years and this has quickly become one of the most one of the coolest things that I've ever done. And I really have enjoyed doing this podcast. Ultimately, it's been just an unbelievably rewarding thing to do to meet all the incredible guests and to have all of your support and uh, help from sharing it and from uh, recommending guests and from, you know, talking about the podcast on Facebook and and generally just being part of the tribe and learning uh, along with me from all these great guests and, you know, just being part of the thing. We're at 100 episodes, close to 2.5 million downloads. We're heading toward 5 million. Uh, I'm looking forward to, you know, continuing this journey for as long as possible. I know there's a ton of noise out there, a ton of other podcasts, a ton of other things you could be doing with your time, like more showing up every day. I mean, it seems to me like everyone's getting into podcasting. You know, we've, we've got some a lot of momentum. I'm going to add video podcasts to the mix pretty soon. So at any rate, I couldn't do it without you. You guys rock. Thanks so much for your support. Really appreciate it. Keep spreading the word. Now, this 100th episode is awesome. I, I've been wanting to interview Jimmy Chin since he spoke at the Unbeatable Mind Retreat last year. I was in awe at what he did and the zen-like quality that this guy possesses. And Jimmy and I really hit it off. We both have a martial arts background, and his venue is extreme sports. He is uh, an alpinist, you know, doing uh, big, big mountains um, like Everest and uh, Meru, which is his uh, documentary. And not only that, but he takes photographs and, and now documentaries while he's in these extremely challenging situations. And he's an extreme skier, so... One of my favorite feats that he did was hike up, uh, hike up Mount Everest and ski off the top. <laughs> that doesn't get you don't get any cooler than that. And uh, I did uh, I did a hundred burpee pull ups this morning with John, my coach John over here at SealFit, so that we could uh, kick off the hundredth day episode or hundredth celebration properly. So who y'all? And if you haven't put your email on our email list, check that out on unbeatablemind.com podcast. Drop your email in. You can also get the show notes. Uh, see all the great sponsors we have, and also get transcripts of the episodes if you like. All right, enjoy. Hey folks, this is Commander Mark Devine coming at you with the Unbeatable Mind Podcast. Thanks so much for coming back and joining me this week. I do not take it for granted. I know it is all you are all super busy, and we have a thousand things to do, and this is just one more. So um, I know, though, that your time today will be well worth it. I can't wait to introduce our guest today, who has uh, become a good friend of mine. His name is Jimmy Chin, who spoke at our last Unbeatable Mind retreat. But before I get going, let me remind you, man, those those five-star reviews have been unbelievably humbling, and I'm so grateful for it. I think we have over 300 of them. And that happened because I asked you all to go rate the, the show on iTunes. That's the only way other people can find it. So if you haven't and you... Um, feel like you have the time or you're just, you know, this pops in your head when you're back at your computer, then just go to iTunes and, you know, look up Unbeal Mind podcast with Mark Devine and just rate it. Hopefully five stars. That'd be really cool. Also, a quick update for those of you who follow what we're doing at SealFit or Unbeatable Mind, which are the two companies that I have that kind of spread this uh, philosophy of mental toughness, resiliency, and being unbeatable. Got a couple cool things coming up. One is we're launching a new program through SealFit, which will be a more a functional integrated training program called SealFit Bootcamp. 
you know, if you imagine CrossFit without the barbells and the things that might, you know, lead to injury along with the mental toughness training laced in. So we're going to, it's going to be a video series, kind of like P90X that you can follow along. And the videos are named after values such as courage and honor. And so you're going to get a lot of really cool dialogue. I'm really super excited about this program and we're going to launch it, soft launch it in March. So just keep an eye out for that. Also, um, really excited that I'm working on my next book, which is going to be the Unbeatable Mind kind of Leaders Edition. So Unbeatable Mind Leader, that's the code name for it. I'm pushing to get it done in April, but I'm super stoked about it because it's, it's going to be, I think, a really neat tool and kind of update of the whole philosophy for those of you out trying to lead teams and using some of these principles. Alrighty, uh, Jimmy Chin, man. Jimmy is super one of the most interesting guys I've met in a long time. I mean, Jimmy is a, an expert mountaineer, an extreme skier. He's done things that, you know, as a Navy SEAL, I mean, I wouldn't even consider doing. And he's a world-class photographer and documentary filmmaker. And his recent documentary, Meru, is fantastic. So we've got to watch that. So Jimmy, Thanks so much for coming to join me. Super stoked uh, to have you here. I can't wait, you know, to talk about your life and what inspires you. Yeah, thank you for having me here. It's uh, it's an honor to be here. Yeah, I appreciate that. And an honor is all mine. So you mentioned you're you're back in Washington D.C. at National Geographic headquarters. So clearly, you work with them for them. Are you you're working on a new documentary? Can you tell us a little bit about that before we kind of dig into your your life? Yeah, the documentary is about a a climber named Alex Honnold, and uh, it's still fairly under wraps, okay. um, so I can't talk too much about it, no. but it's it's a feature-length documentary. We're in the middle of making it. I can't wait to share it with you when we're finished, because I think you'll probably appreciate yeah. a lot of it. And he was, uh, he's a climber, so help me understand. He's a climber. Okay, good. Yeah. And what's your timeline? Do you, do you have a general sense of when you'll be done with uh, it? It's the type of project where it's kind of open-ended. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're hoping to wrap production this year and, and post-production and hopefully share it next year. But it, it depends mm-hmm. on how things go. Right. And, and documentary filmmaking is, is like that. You often have to take a deep breath and let it unfold mm-hmm. uh, as life unfolds. And I can see that. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. A lot of uncontrollables. <laughs> Weather, yes. people, availability, schedules. Yes. Yes. So you told an incredible story at the Unbeatable Mind Retreat in December. And what was super intriguing, I thought, was just, you know, how your early years and your parents, you know, I guess this isn't uncommon, you know, whether good or bad, but in a positive sense, your parents like really influenced you in unique ways and, and not always in the ways that they were hoping or expecting. So you know, give us some insight into Jimmy in your early years. You know, where did you grow up and what was life like for you? And how did your, you know, your relationship with your parents kind of influence your trajectory? Sure. Well, uh, for a mountaineer and alpinist, I grew up in a very unlikely space. I grew up in Mankato, Minnesota, which was this small town in south central minnesota probably one of the flattest places you could ever find in the united states um my parents were both uh chinese immigrants they were professors at the university in mankato 
And, you know, I think of them as stereotypical Chinese parents or maybe any immigrant parents that were, you know, very focused on academics, very focused on providing opportunities for their children to live a good life, Mm -hmm. um, be able to make a a living and, and to really excel, hopefully. And so my father was particularly tough. He came from a, you know, military family um, and was also, you know, from a very early age, taught me martial arts, was, you know, wanted me to understand kind of the tenets of Chinese Kung Fu and martial arts and um, mental toughness and did, did he uh, teach you himself or did he just encourage you to get engaged in the martial arts program in your time? Yes, he taught me himself. Oh. And then because the only martial arts available there for competition was Taekwondo. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I enrolled in a Taekwondo dojo and was very, very fortunate. My, my instructor was a two time national or I think he was the two-time international lightweight champion in sparring. Just kind of randomly, like, somehow he ended up in Mankato teaching at this dojo, which was incredible. And he was an incredible resource for me to have. And I competed, you know, for 10 years in the martial arts. I also swam competitively from eight until I was through high school. My mom, on the other hand, was much more on the arts and music side, and she had me playing the violin by the time I was three and a half. I played violin all through high school as well for 15 years. And so, you know, there was a lot of kind of focus on excelling and and doing the best that I could in each of these sports and in music. I found skiing when I was pretty young. But that was kind of the activity that I got to do if I did everything else well. And, and there was a ski area somewhere near your home, huh? I mean, yes, the there was West. a little teeny ski area right behind my house called Mount Cato, which was basically where the cornfields dropped off into a river valley. And that <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's not, that reminds me of my upstate New York ski experience where we, we'd go every weekend to this place called Snow Ridge. Yeah, and it was just a bunch wow. of, they had two chairlifts and, a, you know, some T-bars. And, you know, it was like 20 minutes up and 30 seconds down all day long. <laughs> yeah. It's not even a hill. My yeah. place wasn't even a hill. It was more like it's where the, the ground dropped into the river. <laughs> <laughs> but that's where you learn how to ski. That's really cool. Yes. So it sounds to me like your your parents because of their culture and, you know, the, the arts and martial arts, they really had a strong um, kind of a paradigm of refining your character. Like they, they understood the, the value of the movement and the, you know, the cultivation of the mind that the arts, you know, provide. I think that's really interesting because, you know, you can see that playing out in the way you operate today. Yeah. I think that uh, it had a, a big influence, especially now that I'm um, I'm a parent and I can see, you know, kind of how you, you know, your, your kids are malleable and like, you know, from your life experiences, you know, what has been really valuable lessons. Right. Uh, and, you know, I think that we live in a time where life can be really easy and you can 
mm-hmm. go through life without ever experiencing any true hardships in the sense of like, you know, struggle. having to, yeah, struggle. And so having these kind of activities where, you know, they're tough um, and they require uh, endurance and they require pushing yourself, you know, did you, did you push, life. Did yeah. you push back against any of that or resist it or did you actually in, enjoy it all? I think I embraced the physical aspects of it mm-hmm. because I enjoyed it. I think I, I had a lot of energy to burn mm-hmm. and I wasn't burning it. I don't know where I would have put it. So, you know, obviously in retrospect, I think it was a really good idea for them to like get me engaged. Yeah. But what I really found that's been important through my life is, you know, especially in the martial arts, it was like the perfection of movement and, um, and the discipline and the training. And, you know, oftentimes there were things that, you know, were difficult kicks or moves that you didn't think that you would be able to do. And you realize that like through training and through practice, you could do these things that like you never thought was possible. Um, uh, I think it's the same with swimming, you know, it's just like when you first start out, like the distances I could swim by the time I was 12, you know, were inconceivable when I started. Um, but also just getting into that flow, you know, just knowing your body and like having that body awareness and knowing how far you can push your body. Um, those are things that I've carried through the rest of my life for sure. So clearly though, you had a, a, a strong physical aptitude and intelligence. And so that these things that your mom and your dad got you into were natural or seemed, seemed like they were natural. You didn't resist it. And and let me tell you a little story. You know, I've shared before, like my son, Devin, who's an incredible kid. And I had similar ideas. Like I wanted him to be a martial artist. And so I was going to, you know, train with him and we got into Kempo Karate and we were on our way, you know, to our black belts. And, um, and I also got him into CrossFit and, you know, all these things that I thought, Hey, you know, I experienced these, they're great for discipline. They'll, you know, be part of his whole repertoire as he grows up. But one day he took him to the dojo and now we were testing from, I think, green to brown belt. And this required us to get out and, and on the mat and spar. Not together, but just spar, you know. And, of course, I was comfortable. I had several black belts at the time, and sparring was a blast for me. But I couldn't get him out of the car, right? He just mm-hmm. had no interest in getting out of the car and, and going and clashing with another human being. <laughs> and that was a real lesson for me as a parent. I was like, holy cow, you know, that even though this is, you know, could be really valuable for him, he has no interest in it, so therefore he's just not going to do it. And if I if I force him to do it, then that's going to create other challenges. I don't know. It, it just seems to me that when there's a resonance in the type of lessons and activities that your parents bring to you and you actually uptake them and, and learn to enjoy them, that provides a lot of um, you know opportunities for like real synchronous growth, I think. You know, like you were in harmony with your parents' needs – they were providing, you know, a, a framework for some real development. Like, you know, as you know, arts and martial arts, that development is happening at many, many levels. Sure. Well, I, 
<laughs> Maybe I should go with with your story in mind. Yeah. I do have to say that um, you know there was a point like I pushed really really hard, and then there was a point at which, and and this is something that has kind of followed me around in life as well. But there was a point in which I thought, okay, well you know what, I feel like I've I've gotten what I need out of this, mm-hmm. and then and then the switch would flip. And, you know, with martial arts, I stopped competing when I was probably 17, 16 or 17. I went to state swimming after high school. I was I was over it. Mm-hmm. I was done. The violin, I essentially stopped playing after high school and I, I picked up the guitar. I started playing the guitar. But in in college, you know, I really went to the things that I I loved, mm-hmm. which was skiing, and which I still can't get enough of. And I, I, I really went into climbing, threw myself at climbing. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it, it wasn't so much rebelling, but I did get to the point where I was like, okay, you know what? This doesn't interest me anymore. Mm-hmm. I learned what I've wanted to learn, and now I'm going to take that stuff and I'm going to apply it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a way, and, maybe my son just got got that lesson a little earlier. He was like, "Okay, Dad, yeah. it's time for me to take care of my needs instead of yours." <laughs> well, <laughs> I've been told that before as well. Like, and and I'm I'm a, I'm aware of it. So when I'm sharing things with my with my daughter and I soon my son who's only one, I haven't really I haven't gotten him training yet. But my <laughs> daughter, I've taken her skiing. Right. And I've taken her to do a few different things. And my I've been very conscious about less about pushing them than to showing her these different yeah. things. Exposing her. And, yeah. Yeah. And if she, she has a natural inclination towards it, then great. Yeah. There um, is a dynamic balance between kind of leading your children into things that are healthy and uh, pushing and forcing them. I think, you know, my yeah. parents and your parents' generation was – Hey, you're going to do this. Period. <laughs> <laughs> and so we kind of lined up and saluted and, and went went with it. But our our kids yeah. these days aren't that way. Well, yeah. this isn't a podcast about parenting. I just think it's fascinating because the more you know, the older I get and the more work I do in a beautiful mind, the more I realize how you know, literally, the first ten to fifteen years of our life seem to define the next you know eighty or so. Yeah. You know, and so it sounds. I can start to see some of your. You know, like when you're on the rock face on Everest or skiing off of Everest, you know, that that part of you, you know, part of you is that little kid who's, you know, in, in that flow state in his first, you know, martial arts experience because that was foundational to everything else that came, you know. No, absolutely. I agree. That's really cool. So let's kind of shift focus. Let's talk about how you, you know, you got it. You, you told this really cool story about being, I forget the word you use, but it cracked me up. Um, the, you know, one of the, the broken destitute climbers in the, on living on the floor of Yosemite. <laughs> oh, dirtbag. Yeah, your dirtbag, <laughs> which you used in a kind of a loving, endearing way, which is awesome. So how did you go from, you know, being, being this college guy and your parents having, you know, hope that you would come back and be a doctor, I think is what you said. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, you're, you're a dirtbag. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is my classic logic and and you know i told my parents after i finished school and i studied international relations at carlton college and you know the way they had laid out 
my life for me is, you know, you have three or four choices. You, you can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer, you can be a business person mm-hmm. or a professor, you know. And as I started to find that that wasn't necessarily true and I found these passions that I was like, you know, deeply committed to, I explained to my parents after you know, four years in college, hey, look, I'm going to take a year off and I'm going to climb and ski full time just to kind of get it out of my system, which they were obviously very skeptical about. Uh, and I essentially moved to Yosemite, California and uh, started rock climbing. And if you're a rock climber and, and you want to go anywhere as like a real climber, you need to spend time in, in the valley, as we call it. Kind of like if you're a surfer, you need to spend time on the North Shore and surf mm-hmm. pipeline. Mm-hmm. It's like that's that's where you cut your teeth, yeah. gain credibility, your experience, and cut your teeth. So I lived as a typical what we call a dirtbag climbing bum, and in in Yosemite and in the climbing world, you know, at the time, dirtbag was it was was a compliment in fact you wanted to be more dirtbag than the next person because that showed that you were more committed than they were to being a, a really hardcore climber and, and what were some of, <laughs> what were some of the qualities of the best dirtbags well i mean you're living on nothing right? right so i lived in the back of my car and um you know you you essentially hid from the rangers because you weren't allowed to live in the Yosemite for longer than two weeks. So you found all these different ways to like hide from, from the rangers. You'd sleep in the caves, you'd run off into the woods and just throw your sleeping bag down behind a boulder. We used to sit at the cafeteria and wait for people to finish their meals. And before they would take their pizza and throw it in the trash, you'd intercept them on the way there and be like, so (laughs) are you going to finish that? Um, I mean, essentially, it it goes in line with, in a way of being a climber and being in the mountains. I mean, you you essentially have to be very, very resourceful and use everything that you have on hand and not take anything for granted or waste anything. And not be distracted by, you know, material things and the worldly things. No, No. and and that's the funny thing about climbing is uh, you don't climb to become rich. There's not a pot of gold really on climb. the top of the mountain. Right? Yeah. No, no. And it's not like you really climb to become famous either. I mean, it's a very niche fringe, I mean, sport, um, although it's become much more mainstream now. And sure, there are a lot of sponsored climbers and, and I've made a living out of it, but that's certainly not why you go into it. You know, I mean, it's not like the glory of, you know spooning with your your climbing partner on a cold ledge in the middle of a face is is not you know (laughs) it's not very glamorous is it no it's not that glamorous but but you do it for the love of that the adventure the camaraderie and the experiences where you really get to test and see what you're made of This episode is brought to you by my friends at Ample Meal. Ample is a new entrant into the meal replacement market. So essentially, it's a healthy meal in a bottle. What I love about Ample is this is so much more than just a protein shake. It is a complete meal, including fiber, healthy fats, protein and carbohydrates, 
all in a very convenient plastic bottle that you just shake it up, add water, shake it up, and then you drink it. And not only do you get hydrated, but you actually get a really well-crafted 400 or 600 calorie meal for busy professionals and athletes and warriors on the go. This thing is fantastic. I believe it's going to replace the MRE for the military because it's healthy. It's actually made out of very, very healthy, non-GMO, nothing artificial. You know, the fats are from like macadamia nuts and, you know, all sorts of good stuff in this thing. So terrific, terrific uh, new option for those of us who train hard and are busy professionals and sometimes just literally have to grab something and go. So at least we're going to get a complete meal now with ample meal. And listeners can use the code unbeatable if you go to amplemeal.com and for any order over 50 bucks you're going to get two bonus meals with your order so go to amplemeal.com use the code unbeatable for the special two bonus meals and trust me i use this every day now it's it's become my go-to and i love it so ample meal is awesome thank you guys thank you connor uh for creating this cool new food source hoo out here You know, on that point, like in the SEAL teams, I remember some of my, my fondest memories were the most miserable. I mean, just, you know, on that beach in an unnamed country, just for, for days on end, freezing my ass off, you know, like you said, spooning with my teammates and wondering what the H I am doing, you know, am I doing there? I can't wait to get out of this job. And then as soon as I'm on the submarine and I'm drinking a warm cup of Navy coffee and I got a blanket around me, it's like, that was freaking amazing. <laughs> yeah. Is it like that with climbing where it's awesome when it's done, but when you're in soon the... Soon as possible. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, well, we call it we call it type two fun. Yes. It's fun yeah. when it's when it's over. Right. And, and, and you just can't wait to get back for more. Yeah. It's uh, strange. Because, problem. well, I mean, I think it's, I think for certain people, I mean we're probably cut from the same cloth in the sense that you want experiences where everything is stripped away and you're having the most, the rawest experience you can have right. as a human being, you know, right. um, in a way that our society has gotten so soft and so easy, like you alluded to before that, you know, some of us are kind of forced to seek out those experiences so that we feel alive. And I think that's why, you know, seal fit and Spartan and all these companies are, are starting to be successful is because people are like, man, I feel kind of flatlined. You know, I know Absolutely. this wasn't your experience. You had a real passion, but this probably, it, you know, speaks to the growth of extreme sports in general. No, I, I absolutely agree. And I, I mean, I've worked with, you know, a lot of the top athletes in, in this space, whether it's the top snowboarders or skiers or climbers, um, and there's a very similar um, thread that runs through a lot of these yeah. people. Um, you know, there's the drive, there's the ambition, there's the the, um, the need for that experience. Uh, there's also, you know, seekers. You know, they're looking to find meaning, you know, right. and purpose and a lot of people, myself included, don't, don't really find that unless you know you're you're out on the edge, yeah. and that to me is is really important in my life, and has taught me my most important lessons. Yeah, no, I get that. And boy, out on the edge you were, you know. And that, I want to talk about your your first and second trip up Everest, and then Meru. But 
you know, this just to cap this idea, there there is kind of a danger for people, you know, going too quickly into some of these extreme arenas. You know, and I'm I'm reminded of the wingsuit, you know, jumping kind of craze. And um, we have a fellow I'm good friends with Andy Stump, who's a Navy SEAL, who briefly held the the you know distance record. I think he went he flew like 17 miles in a wingsuit, and of yeah. course someone had to break that record like a month later. And and then someone in my office has really gotten into it. Someone at SealFit has really gotten into wingsuiting, and he, so he's got a couple hundred jumps. But he was telling me that over not last month, but the month before, over thirty people died. Yeah, doing that sport. And I'm thinking, wow, because they they didn't do what you did. They didn't have the dirt time as a dirt bag. Getting you know in the SEAL teams, you weren't considered a jumper until you had a you know at least a thousand jumps under your belt. I mean, you were a novice. Yeah. yeah. So there's, some, you know, that's, I guess that's a little warning to, there's no, really nowhere to go with that except to say, be careful. You know, if you're interested in going out and climbing Everest, do the work, you know, do the dirt time and be very careful or hire someone very good. No, I, I, I think there's a, a, lot, a lot of space where you're going with that because I think it comes down to, well, the classic dilemma of like, you know, you need to make experience make mistakes to gain experience right <laughs> but you know those mistakes and, can be deadly yeah but really it's managing it's managing the risks and how do you how do you do that and right. how do you do that without having a lot of experience i think it's what you said i mean it's it's a lot of working on the foundations and the building blocks and and paying your dues right. i think a lot of you know, I think I feel like life is really accelerated these days. I feel like people really expect or feel entitled to, not, you know, take really big leaps and bounds in terms of improvement. When at the end of the day, you can't really do that. I mean, you can kind of have some certain life hacks, but at the end of the day, it's like it's it's paying your dues, it's doing the work, it's patient, plotting, planning. Yeah. But, Let's talk about your your attempt, your first attempt up the north face of Everest. You know, one mm -hmm. of this this theme of you know is probably equal parts skill and equal parts planning, right? And so there's skill in planning, of course, but like the that foundational work of just preparing for the trip, so you have the right gear, you've studied your route religiously, yeah. You know, your teaming is like fantastic. All of that which requires, you know, thousands of hours off the mountain. And then you yeah. have the performance of, you know, here we go, three, two, one, go. And, and you, you, you put up your first pitch and then days later you're standing on the summit or not. Yeah. Um, tell us about both sides of that experience for, for your first attempt at Everest, which, yeah. which I understand was unsuccessful from your story. That was the trip with, with Stephen uh, Cook? Or Cook? Yes, yeah, Stephen Koch. Koch okay. Yeah. I mean, I would say that that was probably one of the most formative expeditions I mean, I've, I've had a few formative expeditions, yeah. but I was 28. Stephen and I were talking about climbing the direct north face on Everest, which is not a climb that very many people do. I think only one team has done it successfully, and they we modeled our climbing after them. They were two Swiss climbers. But the face starts at 20,000 feet and is a 9,000 foot face that tops out at 29,000 feet. And basically the line bisects the, the north face. Mm -hmm. uh, and we wanted to climb it 
and ski and he was going to snowboard down it. It was, <laughs> you know, in my mind, the, the biggest, most outrageous objective uh, one could possibly think of. Yeah. So at 28, that seemed like a really good idea. <laughs> um, but we also wanted to do it in alpine style. And for people who aren't indoctrinated in alpine climbing or mountain climbing, you know, style counts, like how you do it counts. And alpine in, in style the is industry, a, essentially it counts to sure. the other people who are watching. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And to yourselves, I guess. Yeah. yeah to yourself. Right. It's, it's the, it's the purest form because you are attempting to climb it with no fixed ropes, like not putting fixed ropes up before you try to climb it or have other people put fixed ropes up for you. Right. We're doing it without supplemental oxygen. Wow. We're not putting any fixed camps in. You basically start from the ground and you go up mm. and you turn around if you can't make it. But you take um, all of your the commitment gear. level for climbing yeah. is, is by far the highest. Right. That's, that's the purest form. It's the most committing type of climbing. It's also the lightest, leanest, you know, form. So that's why we call it Alpine style. I often use that term and apply it to other things when I'm talking to my climbing friends, you know, like let's do this Alpine style. Let's do this light and fast mm -hmm. and surgical. And so I trained my ass off for it. I mean, I, essentially, you know, spent the year uh, climbing in the Tetons. You know, I used to, when I first moved to Jackson, Wyoming, climbing the Grand Teton was a big deal. Skiing, it was even a bigger deal. Not a lot of people skied the Grand. And when I was training for Everest, I was climbing and skiing the Grand three times a week, wow. you know. And I did a lot of... Can I stop? So just so people who are listening can get a sense of this, you are literally hauling your skis up to the top of a near vertical slope, strapping them on and then dropping into that never before skied terrain and just, you know, zooming to the bottom, hoping to survive. I'm sure it's a little bit more than that, but <laughs> well, incredible. yes. So ski mountaineering is essentially um, climbing with your skis on your back. Yeah with all your climbing equipment. And then when you get to the top, you put your skis on, you ski down. And you bring, and so all, the Grand you bring Teton, all your climbing gear down with you, obviously, in your backpack, right? Yes, yes. Okay. You're, you're carrying all your ropes and your climbing gear, you know, in your pack as you ski down. The, the risk of avalanche or, you know, the route just ending in this massive rock pile, I mean, what are some of the major risks in doing that? Well, I mean, most um, of our use, are used to skiing on a groomed slope, you know, even if it's a double black diamond, you know, you know, it's, it's skiable at least for the most part. Yeah. Well, that's why one of the kind of maxims is to, or one of the, you know, approaches is that you, you climb what you ski. So, you know, what kind of snow conditions you're in, you know, what the route feels like, and then, you okay. know, you can make all those assessments. That makes sense. Up. So you're not like climbing up one side and skiing down the other. You're, you're, you're trying to assess the exact route down while you're heading up yes mm -hmm. sometimes you do climb up a different way and ski down a different way but you know for these bigger kind of objectives in an ideal situation yes you, you climb what you ski mm -hmm. and that's not always the case uh you can you can kind of bypass that if you know the terrain really well you've been there before or it's you know somewhere that you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. 
but sometimes that even backfires when you're familiar with the terrain. So it's it's ideal to climb what you ski if you're if you're ski mountaineering. I think other major hazards are usually avalanches, temperature, like if if it's a warm day and you're climbing up in the mountains and it gets too warm, let's say there are rocks and ice uh, that are kind of like held into place by by ice and the ice melts, mm-hmm. then you get a lot of rock fall during the midday. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes you have to turn around, let's say because your fitness level wasn't good enough that you weren't moving fast enough because you were supposed to get to a spot by a certain part of the day to avoid getting hit by rock fall. Mm. And you realize, okay, it's way too late in the day. It's a lot warmer than we thought it was going to be. This this area that we're about to enter has a lot of rock fall potential. So now now we can't go. We need to turn around. Those kinds of decisions that you have to make. And and oftentimes they are based on like your preparation and your fitness. Mm-hmm. Let's say your gear isn't organized the right way and it takes you a few minutes longer every time you try to eat something because you've packed it wrong mm. and you just stop 10 times over the course of a day, that's an hour of time wasted. And if your weather window was for that hour, you missed it. That sounds so much like a seal, yeah. a seal op. That's amazing. So what happened on yeah. Everest when you did that attempt? So we made uh, two attempts. On the first attempt, there was a Sarek fall, which is essentially a by a nearby peak that released uh, and basically almost just out. This thing fell probably close to a mile avert, uh, and we got kind of blown away by the, the air blast, but fortunately not by the actual ice. Mm. Uh, then we went back on another day, got partway up the face, you know, started at midnight, it was a full moon, uh, started up the face, and then just the snow was a little too deep and we weren't moving as fast as we should have been. And we needed to get above a certain area to be safe from this avalanche slope and, and we couldn't make it. And, uh, we had to turn around mm. and, and that was that. And, you know, we spent two months there and when we went, it was the monsoon season because we needed there to be a lot of snow. Mm. So we were literally the only people on the mountain, no which kidding. is wow. a pretty cool experience to have on Everest. I bet. Yeah. This podcast episode is brought to you by Organifi. Now, we all know that green juice is good for us, but juicing is a pain. It costs a fortune and it's super time-consuming. At least that's my story. Uh, I don't juice. So that's why I opt for Organifi Green Juice as an alternative because it's super easy, super tasty. It's an organic superfood green juice powder. Just add it to your water and stir it up. It dissolves almost immediately. Drink it and it will help sustain your energy throughout the day. It'll reduce stress over time. And best part is it really tastes good. So check it out to get your micronutrients from a superfood green juice Use Organifi. I think stuff is great. Go to Organifi.com, and these guys are super generous. I know the founder, and they have offered a 20% discount to you on your order. So go to Organifi.com, use the code UNBEATABLE at checkout, and get 20% off your order. And uh, that link is also listed below in the show notes to this episode. Organifi.com. Hoo-yah. 
Now, you went back again and conquered the mountain and skied off the top. Now, did you did you go on a different route, or was that also the north face? No. So uh, I went. I attempted the north face in two thousand and two. Um, I went back in two thousand and four on the southeast ridge to work on a film project mm. and. Um, you know, obviously I was looking at it like a skier. So the whole time I was climbing up, I was thinking, oh, well, is this skiable? Is this section skiable? And I summited uh, in 2004 and I thought, well, you know, this all looks skiable except for the Hillary step, which we can repel. And a f- couple years later, a friend of mine, Kit Delorier and her husband, Rob, asked me about going back and what I thought about skiing it. Kit was a two-time women's uh, free skiing world champion. She's an extremely accomplished skier and ski mountaineer. And Rob was one of the first extreme skiers sponsored by the North Face. So he's, he was legendary. And so it was a really strong team. And uh, we went back in 2006 and, you know, we're able to climb it in the post monsoon. Again, we were the only team on the mountain and just uh, spent two months there. And we're able to get a little weather window in mid-October, uh, summited October 18th. And we're able to ski right from the very summit, the very top of the summit. Yeah. I, I mean, I saw that picture. It, you know, the picture was the same as, you know, anyone else who summits. Like, there's the flag and there's that really skinny ridgeline. And so you skied from there, down that ridgeline. I think you mentioned that one side you'd, you would have fallen 9,000 feet into Tibet, and the other side 6,000 feet into China or the other way around. Yeah, yeah into um, Nepal, into the Western Kum. Yeah, it was a actually, razorback ridge. Right, that's intense. You corrected me when I actually said you would have yeah. fallen, but you, you, you said you would have skied into those countries had you gone over the ridge. Well, no, you, no, you, you could fall into uh, off either side. You could, yes. okay. You're correct. What did that yeah. feel like? It's so very exposed. Let, let's turn this to like unbeatable mind. Like what is going on in your mind? Like go back to that moment. You're standing on the ridge. You know, you got to be doing some deep breathing and centering and like using all of your life skills just to completely clear any, any mental thoughts or any emotional thoughts. And, and then you just, what do you say to yourself? And what does that feel like? How do you click into flow? I think the way that I clicked into the flow was through the preparation. Mm-hmm. Essentially, the amount of training that Rob and Kitten and I had done, especially after my experience in 2002 and 2004, I knew what it would take. Because the difference between climbing Everest and skiing Everest is that when you the top of Everest and you're planning to ski it, you have to, at that point, on a game. You can't be exhausted by the time you get to the top. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that. I knew that we had to be 100% when we got to the top. And we needed to feel really comfortable with the exposure that we were going to be experiencing mm-hmm. so that when we were there, um, we had some margins. Like, because a lot of things can go wrong in the mountains and they usually happen very quickly. So you need enough of a margin to not only know that you can ski it and feel a hundred percent, but also have the margins to deal with something going wrong. 
Right. You know, you can't be so close to the edge that like nothing can go wrong or you would, you know, perish. You have to have the sensibility, the confidence um, that even if something goes wrong, you can, you can, you have some space to deal with it. Right. And that's basically how it, it went down is that like we were so in shape. And we had all of our systems so dialed and we had planned and pre-planned and visualized um, what we were going to do so many times that by the time we got up to the top, we were like, okay, we're, we're totally ready. We're hundred percent confident. So you get, yeah. you, you, you get to the top. How, how long did you spend on the top, you know, messing with your gear and getting ready for the, the descent, like 20 minutes or uh-huh. Uh, probably half an hour. Or so I was filming and shooting stills. Um, I was actually on assignment. So one of the great moments was actually I, I shot everybody getting ready and, and skiing off. And then I had the summit to myself, um, for about 10 minutes. Oh, and wow. I remember standing there, I got my skis on. I standing there, my skis sticking out <laughs> over the slope. And you're alone at the top and it was of the just world. Like a, Holy yeah, and really taking a breath and trying to be present and thinking, okay, this is a really special moment. You should like let it settle in and imprint itself, you know, in your yeah. mind because you know cool. this is special. So, um, so you each went off kind of like individually. So, is it is it wasn't like Point Break where you're like woohoo high five and you know three people ski off the mountain simultaneously you each went independently down this you know down the ridge and off yes yeah, because we knew that we were only going to get to ski to the hillary step before i had mm-hmm. um rope up and rappel this foot section mm-hmm. and then get across the south ridge to the south summit then you have to take your skis off climb up like 50 feet and then back down the other side um we also knew that the most actually technical and dangerous part of the route in terms of skiing was the Lotsi phase, which is below the camp four. Mm-hmm. And, and we, and we did, you know, we spent the night at camp four and the next morning we got up and once you roll over that edge into the Lotsi face, you're committed because there's not really an opportunity to climb back out. You can't, you, yeah. you wouldn't have the, and how far is that? How far is that pitch? So that face uh, starts at twenty six thousand feet and goes to about twenty one thousand feet. So it's a five thousand foot vertical face. Hmm. Oh, it's five thousand vertical, but it's it's about fifty degrees mm-hmm. average slope. Which is, in terms of skiing, if it's a fifty degree slope and you're standing on edge, you can almost put your elbow against hmm. the the face. <laughs> wow. What's the steepest you've gone down? I mean, anything much beyond 55 degrees is too steep to even hold snow. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's about as steep as you can ski is 55, 60 degrees. When you're, when you're skiing, when you're down, when you're, when you're, you know, you got your line and you drop in, do you have a mantra or, or anything that's going through your mind or is it just purely, you know, instinctual placement of the skis and poles and whatever you're doing? On Everest, on Everest, a lot of it was timed with your breathing. Right. Okay. Just because you're, <laughs> you're out of breath. But mm-hmm. 
I try to stay very focused on the task at hand. You know, you don't want to get in the back seat because the one way you could really fall is if you lose your edge and you fall backwards. Mm-hmm. So you're very focused on staying balanced and, you know, present. I mean, you don't want to overthink it because that can, that can throw you for sure. Mm-hmm. Which, which is why, I, and I'm sure you're very familiar with this, is it has to become kind of second nature. You need to be spend time in that kind of exposure where the stakes are that high often enough that you are comfortable with it, but don't become complacent. Right. That's awesome. So we only have a few minutes left, but let's um, tell me, let's talk about Meru. The the documentary was fantastic, but you know, the, just, you know, the act of climbing up that unbelievable <laughs> feature <laughs> and filming your, your ascent um, was also, you know, pretty awe inspiring. So let's talk about that and then you know, kind of wrap this up and, and talk sure. about what's next for you. Well, Meru is a peak in northern India and in the Garhwal Himalayas. And I think it was considered by a lot of the core climbing community to be one of the hardest objectives in the Himalaya, mm. purely based on the fact that every attempt had ended in failure. And there had been probably 25 expeditions there over the course of 25, 30 years. So, and, and really the reason it was really hard is, or is really hard is because it requires every style of climbing. So rock climbing, ice climbing, mixed climbing, aid climbing. I won't get into the details of what all those mean, but essentially every you know form of climbing, you had to be able to do it at a very high level. Mm-hmm. And and there were just attributes to it that made it really challenging. It's very, very cold. And so my mentor, Conrad Anker, uh, it was his life objective to climb this, this route because, you know, his mentor, Mug Stump, it was also his mentor's kind of objective. So there was kind of this legacy around, around climbing this mountain. Essentially, we made two attempts and... The first one was a spectacular failure, uh, and, and and we barely got off the mountain. But again, it was it was a lot like uh, my Everest experience. I learned a lot from that trip. Mm-hmm. It really helped us prepare mentally in terms of our gear, in terms of how we were going to approach things, how we could have done things faster, better, etc. So the also second respect time, for the mountain, I imagine, right? I mean, you you truly yes. got to experience her, you know, awesomeness. Up yeah. Personally. The full brunt of like Himalayan alpine granite mm-hmm. insanity, you know, it's a, it's a very delicate balance of, of drive and ambition and also patience and acceptance that I find very applicable to life. But, right. you know, <laughs> life isn't fair sometimes and and there's such a thing as being unlucky as well and you know there's a lot of forces out there that are beyond your control so um it's a delicate balance and and for me you know climbing is 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 one part of what i am passionate about but also filming and documenting the stories and and being able to share what we do out there is is important to me yeah. um well, I think that's hopefully inspiring. 
Yeah, for sure. And that's one of the things that's really cool is like, there's no other way that another filmmaker could do that because you've got to be on the, on the face, right? And like some of the imagery just can't be yeah. captured unless you're out on that face doing yeah. the work, you know? That's the extraordinary thing about it, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, it really was a culmination of all my experiences as a climber and as a filmmaker and photographer. Um, right. I had to take everything that I knew and, and put it to use there, which was agonizing. And, you know, I have a love-hate relationship with that responsibility. <laughs> I bet. Do you feel like it puts you at more risk to be carrying the extra gear and to be having to think about filming when, you know, every bone in your body needs to be thinking about safety and about the rocks and etc yeah i mean the way you manage it is that the, the safety and the climbing always comes first right and the shooting and the documenting is is really a luxury right but if you want to say in a if you really were to examine it objectively and say okay are you putting yourself at more risk sure because mm -hmm. anything that you add on top of what is already going on mm -hmm. is you know, straining the system. Right. So, you know, to say that everything was under control and that I'm not putting myself at more risk would, wouldn't be totally honest. Yeah. Like, I, I think if I was to really like break it down for you, yeah. It's, well, it's, it's a whole nother level of the skill. So now, you know, you, you've mastered climbing and skiing down. Now you got to master climbing, filming, and, and the next will be film yourself skiing down. <laughs> <laughs> well what i learned is that filmmaking is a lot like climbing mountains as well you've got to navigate a lot of variables yeah. and things that are out of your control and it requires patience and right. and drive um and not giving up i, I love like, that 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 you know you've, you've you know you've you've made the mountain expedition kind of a metaphor for for life as well as for your you know career that's just getting started you know it seems like in terms of your success i think you're going to have some amazing success with being a photojournalist and a documentary producer but each one of those is like an expedition and so if you put the same like you said patience and planning and repetition and you know intensity of focus into it then success is there in spite of the failures in spite of the obstacles sure no, I, I totally agree. And, and, and I also think the failures are, are, are a gift sometimes. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. um, awesome. That's how you learn. Yeah. I'm sure you absolutely. All right. Yeah. Jimmy, thank you so much for your time. This has been amazing. Um, you know, I know you're going to be working hard on your next uh, film, but folks can find Meru where is it on uh, Amazon or, or how do they find this documentary, which I, I encourage everyone to watch. Yeah. Meru is on, uh, iTunes and Amazon, and uh, you know, I, I deeply appreciate anybody taking the time to watch it. Uh, it was one of the most meaningful projects I've ever worked on, and I hope uh, people enjoy it. Yeah, I know they will. It's just an incredible production, and, and the imagery uh, and the storyline is fantastic. And I, I can't wait to to see the next, you know, next creation. And so, good luck with everything, and. Stay in touch. Let us know how we can help you and support you. And I look forward to uh, seeing you in person again soon. Sure. Yeah. Look forward to hanging out, Mark. Yeah. Thanks again. Yeah. Thanks, Jimmy. You take care. Hoo ya. All right. Take care, buddy. All right, folks. All right. Yeah. Take thanks, care. Jimmy. Uh, that was Jimmy. And, and uh, until next time, you know, train hard, do the work up front, put the planning in. And if you're an extreme athlete, uh, you know, 
make sure you you have a, a level of mastery before you really push the envelope. Booyah, out here. I only publicly support companies and products that I personally use and have found valuable. So I wanted to tell you about Qualia. Now, I'm not a supplement geek. I don't find them useful if I'm fueling properly. But when it comes to my cognitive strength and brain health, I am excited about the emerging industry of nootropic supplements. I've been testing Qualia, designed by my friends at the Neurohacker Collective, for several months now. And it's on the bleeding edge of nootropic research and has become the one supplement that I won't go without on a daily basis. Qualia stimulates what's called broad-spectrum cognitive enhancement, which involves optimizing multiple cognitive variables simultaneously rather than focusing on a single variable. For example, it brings me greater ability to focus and makes me feel more connected while not diminishing my overall awareness of the environment. I experience a systematic enhancement of my brain's ability to take in and process information without any stimulating effect, which would make me feel agitated like caffeine, or depleted after the effect wears off. Now, for a busy entrepreneur and athlete like me, it's a no-brainer to invest in my brain health with Qualia. You can get on the Qualia bandwagon with me by visiting neurohacker.com, that's N-E-U-R-O-H-A-C-K-E-R.com, and use the code UNBEATABLEMIND15R, that's UNBEATABLEMIND15R, to get 15% off the life of your order. Trust me on this one, you won't be disappointed with Qualia.